Welcome back to Just FYI Pod. This is Chris Barnett. I am joined, as always, by Amy Welburn. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Okay. I'm RK. We're, we're here at what? Cahaba Brewing Company. This is a new spot for us. And you tell me this is Avondale. This is Avondale, yeah. yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. I live a few blocks away. It's somehow, I just went <laughs> a completely different way to get here than I usually do. Oh, yeah. Um, but very nice space here uh, in the Avondale area of Birmingham. Right. We are in some kind of what? Side event like storage room. area. Well, yeah, there's casks over there and right. there's chairs set up for an event. And yeah, but it's a big, big space. Um, lots of events and we're very grateful to be able to be here today because yeah, it's cold great. outside. It is cold, right. <laughs> we were talking a minute ago about like how has the week been going and yeah. I don't think we had much more to offer than it's been really it's, cold. It's been really cold <laughs> and your our kids have not had school. Your kids who go to school, my kid who teaches school mm. and um, that's been a little aggravating. <laughs> I bet. Oh come on, I love, <laughs> I love having a full house. <laughs> right uh, after yes, the holidays, exactly. right? <laughs> Well, they, you know, and ironically, you know, as, as we talked about before, you know, my kids are really into baseball. And they were supposed to start baseball this week. I oh, mean, really? Was, they were supposed to be outside and everything. Oh. And, uh, Monday, I took one of my sons. That was an MLK day. I took mm-hmm. one of my sons to a camp down in Tuscaloosa. Uh, but then on Tuesday, they were supposed to get outside. I think, what was the temperature, like 15? Oh, yeah. No right? more than that. Yeah. But their coaches did get them outside one of these days. Wow. And they came home frozen to the bone. <laughs> And, uh, and I, but it was good. I needed them out. They need to go do something. You know? Exactly. Exactly. And we had some power issues, internet issues. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I was planning to watch one of our movies that's streaming um, early, but I couldn't because we lost internet for a few days. So, a couple of days. A couple of days. I mean, did the world not end? It, we thought it might. Right. We were a little concerned. Well, I'm glad you made it. I'm glad you survived. And uh, any other news this week? I mean, any other things you're no, working on? No, nothing. I mean, yeah, I am working on a project that's due at the beginning of March and starting to plan some travel for later in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, really? Where, where yeah, to? well, my, my son who lives with me, the second to the youngest son, is who's working right now, is going to be going to Europe for a couple of months. Oh, cool. In the late spring before he heads off to New York to do a kind of a mission teaching thing. Um, in what part of the in city? In New York. Like, like in uh, New York, in the Bronx. In the Bronx, okay. Yeah, All right. yeah. And it's called the Seton Fellows. Oh, yeah. and, um, and so he's going to go to Europe for a couple months, and I'm going to join him for about a week or 10 days. And Tour guide? Not <laughs> right? No, yeah. I'm more like bank. Okay. <laughs> ATM. ATM. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. I can respect that. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so we're starting to figure out where I'll, where where we will meet up. Okay. So that's always gives me something to look forward to. Yeah. You know? Well, being the traveler that you are, <laughs> I, I can imagine you look forward to putting together an itinerary and all that sort of thing. Oh, so, I do. well, good. Well, that's great. Yeah. For for us, you know, actually in a, in a different vein, but not entirely different vein. You know, we're looking forward to our summer and baseball, and I've been doing, you know, a lot, a lot of stuff sort of starting to churn up, and Is then it? the season starts in like three or four weeks, and oh you know, you're going to see me. I'm going to be sleepless and like <laughs> completely stressed out, uh, living in your car. Probably. Uh, yeah, probably, probably. Yeah. But uh, until then, we should not worry. We yeah. should talk about the movies that we have for today, and, so, and we should live in the present moment. Indeed, I think that, that's at least one of the messages. Uh, that we're going to be sort of grappling with uh, in today's episode. So we, we picked two movies. Unlike last time, we focused on just one, Crimes and Misdemeanors by Woody right. Allen. This time, we've each selected our movie, as has been our practice so far. Mm-hmm. And you chose? Groundhog Day. Okay. 
Which was also on your list. Indeed, right. Right, so right. I just want to make that clear. It was on both of our lists, mm-hmm. and justifiably so. And you chose? Yeah. I chose Babette's Feast, okay. right, which was a Danish-language film, uh, Babette's Gestabud, uh, which came out in 1987. Uh, I, I think a movie that probably, like, in theological, spiritual circles, people have talked about, but I oh, doubt yeah. it's been widely seen. Uh, and so hopefully... Mm-hmm. Uh, people will, will learn about this film and you know give themselves a chance to go out and watch it. So and Kierkegaard isn't going to come into this, is he? I mean, not as much as you would <laughs> think, but I mean, come on, you know, <laughs> when in Rome or, or when in Jutland, That's you, right. know, you have to bring up some Kierkegaard. Right. Uh, okay, so we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. We're going to start with Babette's Feast, then we'll come back with the uh, Bill Murray classic, Groundhog's Day. Is it Groundhog's Day or Ground? Just one. Groundhog. Just one. Groundhog Just one. Day. There you go. Right. All right. See you soon. Okay, Babette's Feast. And uh, before we dive into this story, you know, you and I were just talking in our little break here that you have kind of a love-hate relationship with this movie a little bit, right? Well, I mean, I can't say that, you know, in terms of any past viewing because I hadn't seen it until two nights ago. Oh, right. (laughs) So the the you have a love-hate issue with the reception. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, Mm -hmm. if you look at lists of, you know, highly rated, spiritually significant films, this is going to be top 10 in right. almost any list that you come up with or see or encounter. Should I have made it 19? They're, making, they're starting to make me wonder. <laughs> no, 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 no. And so it came out in 87. Right. So right. I was 27 and I was teaching at the time, went into parish ministry soon after that. And so at that time, this movie was like hot mm. among the ministerial crew. Mm. You know, it was like, the movie that you would have, you know, seminars on or, you know, a workshop on or, you know, all that kind of thing. And so because I'm contrarian like that, I resisted it. I Mm. was like, if all these people like it, it must be a, you know, superficial or too black and white. Pope Francis likes it. This is number one. (laughs) It's his favorite movies. What else can we say? (laughs) What do you say? (laughs) That's right. Uh, Immediately changed my mind. Um, Uh, Yeah, so I I had not seen it before this week, mainly because of that reason. I also got it mixed up in my head with the movie Chocolat, Uh which has kind of a similar, vaguely similar plot of a, you know, a woman coming into a community and bringing kind of life through food. Mm. But it has a, I did see Chocolat in the theaters, and it has a very negative view of religious people. Mm -hmm. So even though I knew they weren't the same movie, I kind of maybe even assumed there was a similar vibe to that. But as I discovered in watching it, I was (laughs) wrong. And so... Well, I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm so happy we've been able to <laughs> finally get you to watch this movie. Yeah. Um, it, it, I, I agree with you, though. I think I was introduced to this film in seminary. I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure it was around that time. And uh, that's why I said kind of at the outset in the intro that I do think amongst a certain group of people, this is a popular movie. Yeah. But, of course, it's not popular in a kind of Dark Knight type sense. Right. right? It doesn't right. have that kind of viewership. And it's probably fairly unknown at this point. I mean, it came out, what, 1987? Mm-hmm. So quite some time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did have its heyday, and it had, uh, I think, a certain type of theological audience that, that gravitated towards it. Yeah. Now, it's funny you mentioned, like, where it would rank. You know, I thought, you know, in a certain way, I could have put it higher, because I yeah. do think it's a beautiful movie, and I yeah. think it encapsulates a lot of 
really rich theological themes. Mm -hmm. But kind of for the reasons you gave, it felt a little bit too on the nose mm -hmm. to put number one or number yeah. two. Oh, yeah. And so I felt pretty comfortable slotting it here <laughs> at 10. It's sort of like it's, it shows us some respect, but, you know, maybe just make it a little bit more complicated when we, as we get closer to the top of our list. Right, uh, right. Okay, so that's a good sort of way of introduction. So what about this movie? Well, a couple of things. I did some, yes, as, as is my want, I did some, <laughs> some uh, backstory sort of reading here. And uh, a couple of things I want to mention first before we get started. So it's based on a short story by the Danish author Karen Blixen. And you've read some of her work before, correct? Well, I mean, her, you might say her, what's her pseudonym is... Isaac I, I, Denison. Yeah. Denison, mm -hmm. which probably most of us know her better by i mean i read the story mm -hmm. that this was based on most of our listeners probably know her from out of africa correct right which was her memoir of her time in kenya mm -hmm. and that was made into a movie with meryl Streep. right yeah the sydney pollock film right uh, I'm trying to think what year that was but it was in the 1980s around the same time actually mm -hmm. that this movie came out so she had a little bit of a renaissance there in the mid 1980s right. Right. um yeah, so she's an interesting figure because, like you said, she, she published under a pen name in English-speaking right. countries. She actually wrote, by the way, even though she was Danish, she wrote mm -hmm. mostly English. Mm -hmm. And then she would translate her works back into wow. Danish. Um, so her facility with English was such that she could write stories and novels in a, a language that was not native to her, which is yeah, incredibly impressive, impressive yeah. right? Uh, but she kind of came from this you know, impressive, kind of aristocratic, very cultured background um, in Denmark. So... Uh, you know, her father, Blixen's father, was sort of a, a scion of these Jutland aristocrats, yeah. you know. And have you ever been to Denmark? Have we talked about no, this? No, no, you have not. No, okay. I bet you have. I, I have many times, <laughs> yes. I have many times. I've been to Copenhagen quite a bit. Oh, yeah. But I have been to the Jutland as well. I felt mm -hmm. like, I mean, listen, I'm from Alabama, right? <laughs> so I cannot disdain the people of Jutland. No. I know a lot of people in Zealand, you know, in the Copenhagen area, no offense, so yeah, but, but they'll sort of, you know, they'll see the Jutland as this kind of rural wasteland, or I think the expression I heard a lot of times was pig farmers. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. So, but I felt like because Kierkegaard's family was from mm. the Jutland area of Denmark, which is that large peninsula, for those who don't know, it's the right. large sort of peninsular area. It's sort of the biggest area in Denmark, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, very windswept, it's mm -hmm. sort of bordered by the, the North Sea. Uh, cold, <laughs> we yeah. went to the beach there, and we drove our car up onto the beach by the North Sea and we got out of the, we were, and the kids were really little and they're running yeah. around and it was like so windy that we all got back in the car. And just, yeah, and we just yeah. looked at the ocean. Yeah. We just sat in the, in the car for a while. But in any case, this is where uh, Blixen's uh, father was from. Um, and uh, her mother was um, a, a part of this very wealthy kind of Zealand industrial family. They built ships and this kind mm. of thing. So she had this very privileged uh, background. And I think in a certain way, we can see her as a kind of, establishmentarian figure, mm. right? Somebody who, you know, moved in the highest circles of culture. Yeah. And, I, and I, my understanding from a little bit of the, the back reading I did was that this has put her at odds with certain readers today. Mm. Um, oh. and, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know her literature well enough to really comment to, to mm -hmm. what extent that kind of comes out. I don't think it really comes out in this particular no, story. No, not at all. Uh, but in any case, uh, like you said, uh, She's most well known for Out of Africa, another work that she wrote in English. Mm -hmm. And that came when she uh, married this Swedish nobleman. Yeah. It's, very, it's all very cinematic, <laughs> yeah. right? She married yeah. this Swedish nobleman in 1914. Uh, his name was Roar von Blixen Finneke, right? <laughs> and apparently he was 
quite the outdoorsman and, and also a bit of a con man, right? Mm. So he, they, they go down to Kenya to start this uh, coffee farm. Right. And, uh, and he prefers to hunt, to go on safari and to womanize rather than to <laughs> run the coffee farm. Yeah. You know, kind of a, a slime ball kind of figure. Uh, and so Blixen, this is a little bit of what Out of Africa is about. You know, Blixen you know, has to leave, uh, is left to manage the estate on her own. And it's around this time, too, that she picks up her father's habit of writing. Mm-hmm. As a kind of side note, it's interesting that her father, too, was quite the outdoorsman, quite the mm-hmm. huntsman, mm-hmm. who also was a bit of a womanizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, he actually died uh, from suicide after he contracted syphilis at some point. Oh. And Roar, too, contracted syphilis and then Gave apparently her. infected her yeah. with syphilis. So yeah. um, in the midst of all of this sort of personal uh, trouble, uh, she and Roar understandably divorced. Right. And then she moved back to uh, Denmark, uh, to this large estate just north of Copenhagen uh, in 1931. She was 46 at the time mm-hmm. and had not published before. So it's hope for us all. Yes, that's right. right. <laughs> so she's 46. She hasn't published. And she decides, you know what? Writing is sort of in my blood. I've done mm-hmm. a little bit on the side. My father was a writer. I'm going to do this. Okay. So over the next you know, few decades, even though she struggled with various health ailments mm-hmm. against supp- supposedly an outcome of her syphilis, uh, yeah. you know, in, yeah. infection. Uh, she was limited to some extent. Reminds me a little bit of Flannery O'Connor, where mm-hmm. I think she kind of got every last drop of writing yeah. that she could get out of yeah. herself. Uh, but she worked on a number of uh, stories and a lot of them have been subsequently published posthumously. Mm. Um, but the main ones, as you mentioned, are Out of Africa, uh, The Angelic Avengers, Last Tales, uh, and then Anecdotes of Destiny, which came out in 1958. Mm-hmm. And that's the collection of short stories that contain Babette's Feast, mm, right? Okay. Uh, and we can call it Babette's Feast. We don't have to call it Babette's Guest of Boo because, right. in fact, it was written in English initially. Right. Um, okay, I'm going to pause there. Any comments? No, or, and I yeah. will just say that I, as I said, I read the story this week. It's available online if anybody's interested. It's available yeah, it's in good public to domain this online. Yeah. Okay, so good. And so in the 1980s, this Danish director named Gabriel Axel, mm-hmm. um, who I've not seen a lot of his work, but apparently he was, yeah. I, I took it that he wasn't like a Scorsese kind of figure <laughs> in, in Denmark, but more of a Joel Schumacher or something. Uh, I'm trying oh, to think really? of, well, I just mean like a, a guy that had done a lot of stuff. He was yeah. very well known, Yeah, a prominent figure in Danish mm-hmm. cinema and theater, but not like an auteur, not, mm-hmm. a, not a kind of cinematic genius or, mm-hmm. or what have you, right? Uh, but he decided he was going to adapt Karen Blixen's story, Babette's mm-hmm. Feast. Um, and he had, he had some, you know, some, some changes he wanted to make. Like, for example, Blixen's story is set in Norway. Right. In the right. far northern reaches of Norway. Yeah. And Axel felt that, you know, yes, uh, you know, that, that's a, a fine setting for her story, but for a cinematic visual mm-hmm. depiction of this story, a little bit too beautiful, right. as he saw it. Uh, a little bit too. Yeah, I can see that. Right. Yeah. He wanted a kind of grayness mm-hmm. and, a, and a kind of, you know, a kind of muted mm-hmm. uh, environment for the film. So he actually decided mm-hmm. to set it in the Jutland, which is mm-hmm. where he was from. Um, they ended up filming uh, in an area on the North Sea around this church called uh, Morupkirka, right? Mm-hmm. Which is this small Romanesque church built in the 13th century. Mm-hmm. Very beautiful, right? So it dates mm-hmm. back to Catholic Denmark, yeah. which is uh, quite some time ago, right? Papist, yeah. as he says <laughs> in, the, in the story. Uh, so another thing that Axel did is, you know, there was some pressure for him not 
to you know to sort of cut costs and use only Danish actors uh, in the film. He said, "No way, we've yeah. got to get um, we got to get a French woman to play right. Babette. Right. We have to bring in um, Swedes to play you know the Swedish figures mm -hmm. in the film, and so on and so forth." So. Uh, he ended up making a kind of bold choice. They, they were sort of going for a number of really prominent French actresses, mm -hmm. but they settled on uh, Stéphane Audran, mm -hmm. who was, I think, more of a character actor. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure. I don't know her filmography mm -hmm. that well, but from what I understand, you know, she was not... I mean, this is one of her more celebrated roles. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Um, and so, in any case, uh, Axel goes back. He goes through the story, and eventually they, uh, they, they, they sort of pull off this production they released it at Cannes in uh, May of 1987. Oh. Uh, then it takes a wider release in August of 1987. And eventually, as you pointed out, yeah. it, it receives much critical Same. acclaim. Mm -hmm. uh, it wins the Oscar for Best Foreign Film mm -hmm. for 1987. Um, so this is a prominent film. It's not a, uh, you know, even though it is in Danish and for many people will seem, I guess, maybe artsy or mm -hmm. quaint in some ways. Um, it's a movie that, that definitely received a great deal of critical attention upon its release. And um, I think the attention was not just from, you know, film people and not just from religious people, but also from food people. Yes, I right. mean, one of the things I read was that in the wake of Babette's Feast, you know, restaurants would attempt to duplicate the menu mm. and all of that kind of thing. And the dishes she cooked became popular. Yeah, we're so planning to do that in my house tonight. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Get those little I got birds my quails in the, the, yeah. and, the, and the gigantic turtle. <laughs> I'm coming back to the turtle, trust me. Uh, I love the turtle. And Craig, I mean, it's a little sad. I guess I shouldn't laugh at the turtle, but it seems very uh, uh, displeased <laughs> with this situation. Right. right. Um, okay. So, uh, so what's it about? What's the story about? Um, all right. I, you know, I think I'm, I'm going to stick to the film here. I'm not going to go back to the story itself. Right. Right? Oh, yeah, so I'm going yeah. to stick to how the film presents the story. So it's set in the late, late 19th century. There are a pair of aging sisters, and they're seen to be ministering to the residents of this small Jutland village, as we mentioned. The work they're undertaking, it's, it's very kind of drab, gloomy stuff. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, feeding, spoon feeding a, a sick person some, some ale right. and fish soup, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, but the sisters, uh, Martina and Philippa. Named <laughs> yes, after. Named after Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon, right. the, the two sort of pillars of Lutheran theology. Right. Um, Martina and Philippa, they do this, I, I would say, with, with a great deal of care. And yeah. Love, oh, yeah. Right? They're not, they don't seem to be unhappy, right? Yes. And we're going to come back to this right. because, I mean, the, the simplistic reading of this movie is that Babette saves these miserable Christians. Right. <laughs> right. And we're, we're going to mm -hmm. swift that. We're going right. to sweep that, that opinion off to the side a little bit. And it's not too hard to do it anyway. Right. Um, but in any case, we see that Martina and Philip are, they're, they're, they're very, again, tender and caring of this community, not least because their father founded the community. Their father mm -hmm. was a Danish priest. I could really go nerdy here on you and talk <laughs> about how pietism unfolded in Denmark mm -hmm. uh, in really starting uh, in the 18th century, but then mm -hmm. by the time of the late 19th century, it was starting to fade in Denmark, mm -hmm. so there might be a little bit of an anachronistic problem here. Mm -hmm. But regardless, um, it would have been, not, it would not have been uncommon for a Danish priest to gather his most pious flock around mm -hmm. him and to embrace the principles of pietistic spirituality. Mm -hmm. You would call these something like conventicles. Mm -hmm. And for people in the US who are familiar with the sort of, the sort of history of Methodism, <laughs> Something mm -hmm. like that, something very similar to that happened mm -hmm. in Oxford 
when John Wesley, who was an Anglican priest, decided to start founding these pietist conventicles, eventually right. called Methodist meetings mm -hmm. uh, in, in England at the time, of course, eventually spreading to the U.S. and becoming the United Methodist Church. So this Danish priest, I mean, from what I can tell, he's, a, he's an, a, an established clergy person. Right. But he has a very close-knit gathering where mm -hmm. he spreads these little bits of wisdom and they right. sing special hymns together. They have the love feast, as the Moravians yeah. would call it. Mm -hmm. um, and he seems to be a stern, but would you say this, benevolent oh, man? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Well, I did read somewhere online, like, he's this oppressive father. But I don't get that impression, per se. Well, I think you can maybe get that if you believe that what the sisters decide about their lives is kind of forced by him. But... I don't get that. Well, right. That's okay. Yeah. So that's that's a good segue mm -hmm. to the next sort of major mm -hmm. chapter in the story. So, what we end up learning is that the sisters, their 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 sort of adoration, their affection, and their loyalty to their father, has not come without sacrifice. Right. So, in the case of Martina, she had a lover, mm -hmm. right, a, a man that she was sort of smitten with, and then he felt the same way a young Swedish nobleman named mm -hmm. Lawrence Leleuvenhelm. Mm -hmm. And he, it's a, kind of a long convoluted backstory, but he has a an aunt who lives nearby. Mm -hmm. I take it that she's sort of the lady of the manor in the, right. in the area, the, the, the wealthy woman who lives mm -hmm. nearby and kind of has, has, you know, like many people in court, as it even says in the movie, many people in the court in those days were very pious, at least in outward bearing. Right. And she's one who <laughs> appreciates the minister's sermons and sort of thinking and she brings Lawrence over to, to meet the minister and his daughters. And of mm -hmm. course, he's immediately smitten by mm -hmm. Martina. Well, he soon learns that there's no way mm -hmm. <laughs> that she's ever going to leave this mm -hmm. small community and move off with him. And mm -hmm. so in despair, he decides, I will just make the most of my life as a career military man. Some things, he says, are just impossible. And it's right. a kind of crestfallen moment. Do you want to say anything about yeah, that? I'm yeah, I'm just trying to think. As I said, I read the story, and I can't remember if this makes it into the movie or not, but there's a an implication in the story that kind of what she brings, her spirituality, her radiance, is almost like too much. Mm. It's like he sees kind of a luminosity through her, maybe by implication in the lives of these people, that he can't deal with. I can see that. I mean, the, yeah. the actress that they cast is mm -hmm. is, is incredibly beautiful. I mean, right, in a sort of Scandinavian right. way, right? The sort of right. essential way. It's and, like a, a spiritual a spiritual kind of element to life that he doesn't want to engage with. So then, in reaction, mm. he says, you know, he kind of makes a vow: "I'm just going to focus on yeah, climbing right. in my career and right. all of that kind of." I can see that. I, I think it's to yeah. me in the film anyway. It's more implied that it's just you know she's this she's this great beauty mm -hmm. and she's so caught up in the kind of spiritual life, uh, yeah. the, the, yeah. the spiritual lives of her uh, father's community that right. she just she won't just move off with him. Right, and, that's and, true. And, and, yeah. and he's just it, it just it's too much for him to bear, mm -hmm. and he just says, "Oh, mm -hmm. just forget it all." You right, know, <laughs> like right. I'm just I'm out of here. Yeah. You know? uh, and of course, she's she's sad too, but sort of accepts her fate with resignation. Right. Then there's Philippa. And she is this incredibly talented singer. There's some really great music, music in, this, right. in this segment about Philippa, both uh, church hymns, but then also her duet with this mm -hmm. French baritone named Achille Papin. Like, right. <laughs> they say yeah. it. And, 
and uh, and Papa has come to uh, this small community to get some some fresh air after right. a tour of Europe, mm -hmm. um, and he hears her singing in church. And even though he is a Papist, yeah. uh, right, even though he's right. Roman Catholic, mm -hmm. he right. knows immediately that she is going to be a diva, as mm -hmm. he says it. Mm -hmm. And he goes to the father and says, "I will make her." Uh, she will sing God's praises, he right. course, it week, week, because he's very attracted to her and so right. on. Uh, and he starts giving her lessons. Uh, and in a really wonderful scene, mm -hmm. they're, they're singing a segment from um, Don, Giovanni. Don Giovanni, Mozart's mm -hmm. Don Giovanni. And clearly the, the music and the sort of meaning overlap here because, you know, uh, Papa is trying to draw her to him. He's trying to seduce her, mm -hmm. a la Don Giovanni. Mm -hmm. uh, and she is both attracted and repulsed. Right. And then he leaves, and there's this kind of moment. She's like, nope, that's it. I'm yeah. done with this guy. Yeah. So then the minister walks over and says, we're not going to need your services anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and Ashio Papa leaves and goes back to Paris in this uh, a very uh, sort of godforsaken state. Right. Um, okay. So then the story pushes forward uh -huh. again, right? So these are this is sort of the, the flashback, and now we're pushing forward again. And suddenly one night, kind of this, this rainy, windswept kind of storm, this uh, impoverished woman shows up at their door and she doesn't speak Danish. And all she has is this note from Ashio Papa, right? Mm -hmm. And he explains uh, to the sisters that he is sending this woman to them because she has nowhere else to go. Um, she is fleeing the Commune de Paris, right? This sort of socialistic uh, revolution in Paris that kind of dominated uh, the city from March until May 1871. Um, and Babette's family, we learn, has been killed in this conflict. Her husband uh, and son. Her husband and son, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and she is now essentially a refugee. So the sisters, um, yeah, there, there's a little bit of concern about how to provide for her, but of course they have, they don't question it. They take her in, really. And she too is a papist. Yes, that's right. And she is also Catholic. <laughs> but and, and they don't care. what the note says, though. The note says simply Babette and cook. Oh, right, right. right. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. It. Right, she's a she's a housekeeper who can cook. Right, um, and it turns out that she can. I mean, the, the the sisters and their community live on a very kind of meager diet, like lots of dried fish and bread. And it's not just because of the. I mean, maybe it's mostly because of the circumstances, but also there's like a spiritual mm -hmm. aspect to that. Right, is that you know we are not paying attention. We are not bothered by the present circumstances because our eyes are on Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Our right. eyes are on the heavenly kingdom. So we're, you know, we are going to eat as plainly as we can right. as a spiritual exercise. That's right. Right. There, there's a lot of self-denial mm -hmm. going on. Though I do think it's, I mean, again, this oh, is where yeah. the environment sort of reflects <laughs> true, itself in them true. as well. I mean, this is, there's a lot of bread, a lot of, a lot of, again, yeah, a lot yeah, of dried right. cod, you know, right. this sort of thing. But Babette somehow kind of makes it a little better than before because yeah. she adds some onions and these right. kind of things to the dishes. And right. people are like, well, this Babette, <laughs> she's really a godsend. Right. Uh, they don't even really know the half of it, right? Mm -hmm. So. It's around this time, and I was even telling my daughter last night, who's in fourth grade, and mm -hmm. she was, she wanted, I told her, I was like, I gotta watch this movie. Yeah. And she was like, oh, come on, dad, it's in Danish. And I said, come on, like, and I said, you you'll like, read. I was like, I was like, you'll <laughs> like this part, and she did, she loved oh, it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it, cause, because the last, I don't know, maybe 40% of this film mm -hmm. is just fantastic, right? Yeah. It's just yeah. as good as it gets. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the movie starts moving to this kind of crescendo. So um, we learned that Babette has, this would be a, a picking knit section here. Yeah. She somehow 
has a lottery ticket still in Paris. I don't. Yeah, that her. It, it says her friend, a friend of hers in Paris, has kind of like re-upped it every year or something. Makes, I don't know how makes it makes no sense to me. Right. Yeah. But whatever the case. <laughs> right. So she she comes into some money. I'll just put right. it like that. She comes ten thousand francs. Right. Right. Um, and uh, Martine and Philip learn of this, and they're like, oh, "But that's going to go back to France." Right. Um, they're really concerned, but they understand. Right. It's There's, God's will. Right. It's God's will, and so on. <laughs> Well, Babette then surprises them and says, look, I know I've come into this money, but I would really like to prepare a, quote, real French dinner uh, on the occasion of your father's birthday, which the sisters are planning to commemorate. Which is 100th birthday. Uh, right, 100th birthday, thank you. Mm -hmm. And they agree. <laughs> but it's sort of one of the more amusing sequences of the movie. Um, as the supplies and ingredients arrive that <laughs> Babette is procured, uh, they grow worried that Babette's exotic luxuriousness is just a little bit more than they had taken on it it could be sinful at the very right. least it's inappropriate right and they start getting really uncomfortable and again sort of one of the amusing parts is as they're wheeling all of the goods the the quails and the wine and the and the, the cognac and everything right. there's this large sea turtle sitting on a some kind of a thing and it goes you know like hisses at them and, they, and there's one really funny sequence where they start they have like daydreams about this sea right. turtle hissing at them. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 comical. Um, okay, so there's a lot of of, of angst leading up to this mm -hmm. big dinner. Mm -hmm. um, the sisters uh, they they don't want to hurt Babette. They love Babette, but they warn the congregants that this could be a little bit more than we bargained for. Please forgive us. We're not trying to denigrate the memory of our father. Well, needless to say. Uh, mm -hmm. As the as the as they all kind of file in to sit, Babette, who is enlisted to help of this wonderful little waiter, oh, I Eric. Love, <laughs> yeah. I love them and the guy yes. who sits in the kitchen. Oh, I'm coming back to him. He's <laughs> gonna be at the funniest moment. Okay. Right, the stagecoach driver. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so so Babette unfolds this beautiful first class seven course meal, which includes drink pairings. Mm -hmm. uh, and I you know, I just had to kind of go through the the different the different uh, aspects of the meal just yeah. very quickly so yeah. they start with turtle soup mm -hmm. with the montiato mm -hmm. uh, then they, they come back with linus demidoff which is a kind of caviar dish with on like a little pancakes pancake right? yeah. mm -hmm. served with champagne then there is kaya en sarcophage yeah right that's... yeah quails and some kind of a pastry mm -hmm. served with pinot noir <laughs> With the heads. With the heads yeah. and the brains. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was like the grossest part <laughs> when he sucked the head. Well, he knows I... how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Um, then the uh, the endive salad. That was yeah. kind of the part of the meal that sort of overlooked. Yeah. Then, then there's rum sponge cake with more champagne. Mm -hmm. and then a big sort of, Fruit. you know, kind of presentation of fruits and cheeses mm -hmm. and sauterne, mm -hmm. you know, the sort of dessert wine. And then finally some coffee hand ground by the, the stagecoach driver and uh, yeah. a generous helping of cognac. So, of course, you know, this is all sort of rolled out, in, in, you know, one one course after another. And at first, the, the members of the community are kind of like, well, you can tell they like it. But they don't want to say anything. Well, because they vowed not to. Right. Because they, they said, right. They said, we're not going to say anything about the food. Right. But thankfully, two guests who would right. not have otherwise been there are there. Okay. Right. The lady of the manor, the local noblewoman, and her nephew, Lawrence Lovenhelm, who is in town. And yeah. he is this very cultured man at the Swedish court. And he himself has been to Paris. Mm -hmm. And he himself has had this exact, you know, sort of, you know, sort of uh, course, right? Mm -hmm. This sort of seven course meal. Mm -hmm. And he even says at one point, he says, this reminds me a great deal 
of the finest restaurant in Paris, the Café Anglais, which, by the way, was a real restaurant. Oh, was it? Yeah. Um, and uh, he sort of educates the group as they go on. And he's the one that's sort of calling attention to how great this meal is. Mm -hmm. And eventually people are like, well, okay, he's right. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's sort of, their resistance yeah. starts caving. Um, and he sort of gives us as a, a kind of guide through uh, how intricate and delicate uh, Babette's meal is. And he sort of allows us as the viewer to kind of get an inside look at this mm -hmm. sort of cooking extravaganza, which right. as you said, a lot of you know, restaurateurs and chefs have commented on this, right. this movie. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so as the night unfolds, the community, they're kind of slowly getting a little right. drunk. I, I was thinking, that's <laughs> yeah. gotta play a part in it, right? Right, well, there's, that, there's that one woman who's like, refill, please. <laughs> right, you know? right, well, she and, drinks some water and right, then she like, switches to wine right right uh but they all begin to lighten up and one of the things i haven't mentioned yet is that they before this meal mm -hmm. they're starting to get kind of squirrely with each other community <laughs> had become fractured yes right. they're, they're right. They, you know there's a little bit of there's a kind of a dour sort of feelings of regret or maybe a sense that you know no, nobody's really what they seem kind of attitude that's going on and a concern that they would not had not been would not be forgiven Right. For past sins, mm -hmm. right? Correct. That grace somehow would be withheld from them. Right. That's right. That's sort of like they don't. They're not saying that, but right. that's definitely underneath right. the surface mm -hmm. of a lot of their remarks. So, um, but it, but instead, like now that Babette has prepared this feast, they've had a little bit of wine. They're actually enjoying each other. They're mm -hmm. enjoying their food. But but again, not they're not just enjoying their food. They're enjoying being in one another's company. Right. Mm -hmm. And there is a real sense of um, reconciliation. Yeah. And at one point, the, the general, Lawrence Lovenheim, mm -hmm. stands up and he says, quote, mercy and truth have met, met together, <clears throat> righteousness and bliss have kissed one another. And this is part of a larger kind of speech he gives. And then when he has to take his leave, he tells Martina that he will always love her and she will always be with him, even though their love has not been satisfied on earth. <clears throat> and this sort of leads to the final kind of major scene in the film, and I'm almost wrapping this part up. But the, the sisters then, of course, soon find out that it was none other than Babette, who is the head chef at the Cafe Anglais, mm -hmm. and that she has spent all of the money that she inherited through this lottery or whatever it was mm -hmm. uh, in preparing this meal for them. Uh, and the sisters immediately kind of feel guilty, and they say things like, oh, you know, you shouldn't have done that or whatever. But Babette says, quote, an artist is never poor. Right. And then Philippa concludes by saying, remember, Philippa's the artist too. Right. She concludes by saying that in heaven, Babette will fully realize her artistic destiny. Quote, she says, oh, how you will enchant the angels. And, and that's, that's the last line. That's the last line of the movie. So that's my sort of plot summary. Do you want to add anything else to that before I jump um, in? No, movies? I'm interested to get into the spiritual aspect okay. of it. Yeah. Right. So you know, a few themes, and then we'll jump into the categories, and then right. we'll, we'll switch over to Groundhog Day. But, um, okay, so I think, like I said earlier at the very outset, I mean, the, the sort of obvious reading here is like, there were these like really <laughs> like miserable Christian people that thought about denying their bodies. And then this like really like attractive, like really good cook French lady comes in and like makes them cool. Right. So it's like right. there's this kind of juxtaposition of like, quote unquote, bad Christian piety and quote unquote, good secular sensuality. Right. right. But I think you know, that's, not it, it. It's, yeah. that's definitely not what the no. movie is about. Uh, and I think. You know, unfortunately, those kind of simplistic readings kind of reminds me of like going through Twitter <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, or something right. like that. But um, but really what I think this movie is about, and like I told you when we first got here, I was like, 
oh, this is a Catholic movie. <laughs> right. It oh, kind yeah. of is in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. Intentionally or unintentionally. I mean, that's the way that I, you know, heard about it. And I think right. definitely Catholics embraced it as their own, as a very beautiful expression of incarnational right. sacramental theology. Right. right? I, I think that's what it, it's kind of going for. I mean, right. I don't know that it has to be explicitly Catholic, mm-hmm. of course. And, and, mm-hmm. I, and even like, we're going to get really historically invested in, in the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, a pietist conventicle in Denmark would have been not necessarily indicative of Lutheranism in general yeah. either, right? So, yeah. so I don't think we need to do some kind of reductive like Catholic versus Protestant mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. reading here either. But it does have a, a certain Catholic mm-hmm. flavor to it, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is it going for? Well, I, I think one thing is that it's going for kind of holism or right. a spirituality of holism. So I think you might say in this regard that, you know, in life, we all experience these like dialectical tensions. You know, we all, you know, we go through life, we feel hopeful at times, we feel fearful at times. There are, there are times of leisure. This reminds me of, uh, you know, Ecclesiastes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there are times right. of leisure and there are times of work. And then there's the things of heaven. You know, we might think of like St. Augustine, the city of God, and there's right. the things of earth, city of man, right? Mm-hmm. And then of course, the, the motif that's used a lot in this film is the tension between spirit and flesh. Right. So one way to kind of think about these polarities is that we have to choose. Mm. And yeah, yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of theological work that could be done yeah. here because in some senses, that's exactly what Jesus says, right? In the right. Sermon on the Mount. Oh, yeah. um, and, that, but, and I don't think that this film gainsays Jesus necessarily either, but I think what it does say is that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that that the real sort of fulfillment of the Christian life is in choosing the one rather than the other, mm-hmm. choosing heaven over against earth or choosing the spirit mm-hmm. over against the flesh. But I think what this movie wants to suggest, and this is where I do think it has a kind of affinity for Catholic theology, mm-hmm. is that really what we're looking for is not so much an, an either or, but a both and. We're, right. we're looking to kind of resolve these tensions in a meeting of the eternal and the temporal or mm-hmm. the spirit and the flesh that the, these these polarities which seem like oppositions mm-hmm. are actually united in christ or mm-hmm. in in the sort of religious life mm-hmm. and it seems like this is kind of what the movie is going on going for so for example let me get let me kind of concretize that a little mm-hmm. bit so the sisters have this religious vocation mm-hmm. it's good Right. It's good. Yeah. They're wonderful people. Right. They're, 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 they're salt of the earth. They're as they good as they come. They take care of the poor. They take yeah. care of the poor. Right. So mm-hmm. the movie is not critiquing them. In fact, Babette's feast would not have been possible without the sisters. Yeah, because, and they're not presented as like negative, mean people. Not they're at all. Gentle. Right. Gentle souls. Right. Yeah. yeah they're, they're, they're in, 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 in just in terms of the presentation of the film, mm-hmm. they're as good as Babette is. Right. <laughs> right. right. Um, but their life has been sort of tilted to one side, yeah. right? There's a sense in which they've missed out on right. certain things uh, in their vocation. Um, and it, it seems like, in a way, their lives, while they couldn't have it all on earth, there's something, there's a longing that they, that they mm-hmm. have that needs to be still yet to, it's, it's right. yet to be fulfilled, right? right. Um, and that faith is the sort of means by which this fulfillment might happen, that they can somehow not only have charity and good works, but then also beauty and pleasure in right. a sense. Uh, and I think this is what Babette's dinner shows them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the general is the one who kind of says this, like, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically says, look, you've given up a lot, but in your faithfulness, 
you've been given also the things that you rejected. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that that's what faith is. Faith isn't mm-hmm. just giving something up. It's also giving something back. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think this is what the movie is ultimately about. Again, I've been going on a long, a long discourse about yeah. Kierkegaard's fear and trembling, which comes to a fairly, I mean, despite Kierkegaard's reputation as a thinker of either or, he kind of implies this too, that this is why faith is so hard mm. because it's easy to give something up, but it's hard yeah. to expect something back. Yeah. Right, yeah. uh, and that this is why faith is not an easy thing. As in Kierkegaard's day, in our day, I would think as well. Mm-hmm. There's like, oh, I have faith, or you think of a politician, oh, I'm, a, I'm a, I represent <laughs> the faithful. But but for Kierkegaard, faith isn't just being against something; it's also being open to more, right. in some sense. Right. Uh, in any case, uh, I think the ultimate sort of message here, theological message, is that God's grace will complete our lives in ways that we cannot possibly expect. Um, and it's just gift upon gift, mm-hmm. right? And so it's this very beautiful kind of theological vision. Now, a couple more points, and then we'll move on to the categories. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one common kind of reading of the film is that with all this in mind, Babette is a figure of Christ. Yeah, because she gives of herself and sacrifices everything, basically. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, yeah. so she, she, gives, she gives of herself, she sacrifices herself, she gives up her money, her mm-hmm. talents, mm-hmm. her poured out in this kitchen sequence which is yeah. just fantastic right mm-hmm. her talents are poured out her her spiritual vitality elan right the, all of this is brought out it, it, you know in the film and it's shown how in her pouring out her, of herself for others she gives them a kind of you know a sense of atonement right mm-hmm. suddenly these sinners are brought together there's communal forgiveness right. forgiveness um you know this is a kind of eucharistic feast mm-hmm. right this yeah. is the the kind of communion mm-hmm. uh, of, of these people brought together over a meal. Um, but there's another way which I think she's Christ-like too, and I think this is a little bit more subtle, mm-hmm. in that her talent is not just for others, it's also part of who she is. In other words, it's not yeah. she's not like, she's actually just being, what she's just doing what she does. Right, right. right. Um, and uh, she doesn't create like sort of in abstracto for these people or whatever. Mm-hmm. Rather, she is a creator. That's who she is. And her yeah. gifts simply boil over. This is the, the language that Meister Eckhart uses, mm-hmm. right? When he talks mm-hmm. about, you know, creation, mm-hmm. that, that God sort of boils over into the mm-hmm. world, right? Um, and I think that's kind of what she does here. Yes, she intends to help them, but she's also just being who she is, right? right? right. She's not sort of going against herself. She's not being forced yeah. by some arbitrary power to like give up, give this up, give this mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. By being herself, she yields gifts to right. the congregation, to the, the people around her. So I do think this is a kind of, again, you mentioned the incarnation. I think that's the right word mm-hmm. here. I mean, in, in Babette's Feast, we get kind of a, a sense of Christ as both God and man, or according to Chalcedon, right, God is, or Christ is the same perfect in the Godhead and the same perfect in manhood, meaning that Christ is both, right? right. And so maybe Babette doesn't incarnate the divine sense of Christ, but rather the human sense of Christ, because she endures despite her isolation and grief. Mm-hmm. She never forgets who she is. And in a way, I think she serves, serves as a kind of, you know, an existential goal or, or right. some, someone to imitate, right? Yeah. In her willingness to be who she is and to give to others. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Do you have anything you want to add there? No, no. Yeah. I'll, maybe to your categories. I yeah. don't know. I have okay. one thing to say. But, yeah. All right. So the funniest moment. Okay, so it's uh, it's not really it's not really a moment as such, but I, I love the stagecoach driver. And when you watch yeah. the film, 
he's the one that drives the general and the the, the old noble woman to yeah. this this uh, dinner, and he's just a kind of bystander, and he comes in. But of course, Babette, again, very Christ-like, Feature. treats him like anybody else. Right. right? He is a member of the party, and he and he she keeps refilling his glass, and he's right. getting you know just blasted. Right? <laughs> right, <laughs> he's, right. You know, he's, he's he's had quite a bit to drink. But he says at the end, talk, you know, thank you. Yeah. He really appreciated what she did for him. Yeah. Uh, and just the expressions on his face as she continues to pour more right. and more like uh, champagne in his glass is pretty good. Yeah. I, the thing I like about the kind of the drinking in the movie is that she, you know, watching her as she cooks, she doesn't touch anything. And about kind of two thirds yeah. of the way she starts drinking wine. And that's like I as a cook. You know, as a person who, you know, cooks in a kitchen, my own kitchen, you know, that's kind of the way it is. It's like you get to a point where that much is done. Now I can start kind of relaxing, too. No, it's very, it's very real. (laughs) I think for anybody who's, whether you're manning the grill or cooking in the kitchen, we've all, you know, we've all been there. Right. That's right. All right. The most poignant moment. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the entire meal sequence is very moving. There's lots of wonderful lines of dialogue. And kind of to your point, this is where it gets to be easily quoted and mm-hmm. theologians can put it at the top of their syllabus or whatever. Um, but I will say this. I, there, there's two understated moments that I really like in this in this sort of long meal sequence. The first is Philippa's last song. Yeah. She sings for the community. And it yeah. sort of acknowledges like that death is encroaching. Mm-hmm. And it... It's melancholy, yes, but there's also a kind of call to save her life, and there's, right. there's a, a kiss between a married couple and the mm-hmm. group, and you know, there's sort of this kind of recognition that that they should embrace one another while they can. Right. And there's something really beautiful about that. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I like you know Babette's moment of solitude after her meal. She drinks a glass of wine, and she's all by herself, and yeah. there's just something truly profound about that. Yeah, I really enjoyed absolutely. Yeah. All right, if you could only watch one thing. It's got to be the whole meal. I mean, you oh, got Yeah, pull it up on YouTube, like, yeah. today. Okay, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, and then performance? Uh, Stéphane Audron, I think, has to be, you oh, know, yeah. the, the sort of main figure here. I mean, there, there's, there's a real melancholy mm-hmm. about her, but somehow it doesn't, you don't feel oppressed by it. No, it's a uh, reserve, and yes. you can you can tell that she has experienced life, she's lived life, um, and she's carrying it with her. Mm-hmm. Another standout, mm-hmm. I think, is Jarl Kula as the old general, not mm-hmm. not the younger version of Lawrence, right. but the older version. He kind of steals the show there, where he's explaining the different dishes, and even anybody says a Montiato today, I hear it in that <laughs> voice, Montiato. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's something about the way he does that. Okay, go ahead. And then your takeaway. So, okay, I, you know, to me, I think the ultimate takeaway is trust in providence, right? Yeah. Have faith, have faith in God's providence. Yeah. Um, but to me, the, the, the sort of encapsulation of this idea comes from a hymn that's repeated throughout the movie. And there's a line in it, which I think is just so pertinent, not only to the plot of this story, but then also, I think, to uh, this kind of larger theological mm-hmm. vision it has, which is, and here's the quote, and this is where I'll end. The quote is, Never would God give a stone to the child who begs for bread. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, pretty good theme. You know, even Pope Francis is right about this one, I think. Uh, so, uh, and so, if I could mention yes, one more please, scene, yeah. I mean, if I were going to mention the most poignant scene, to me, it's the scene after the dinner. Oh yeah. When mm. they leave, when the townspeople leave, mm. the congregants, and they join hands around the well. Right. Oh, my God. I mean, that to me was it spoke of the fact that what they had received, mm-hmm. they were going to carry out. That right. It wasn't going to end at the door, which, again, is a very kind of 
statement about grace and sacramentality is that we are given a gift, this free gift, and we the, we carry the fruit out with us. Right. And, and that and fruit is community here. It has the, um, I guess he's sort of mentally disabled in some way. But as Hallelujah. Guy, Hallelujah. <laughs> right. As he says re- repeatedly throughout the yeah. movie. But I think that's a good way to end. So yeah. uh, uh, please go go see Babette's Feast. Uh, you know, it, Amy's right. I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of a cliched aspect to it uh, that I think not so much in the film itself, but just in terms of how it's been passed down yeah, over the last few decades. Yeah, but it's definitely worth it. And it's yeah. streaming on various platforms. Oh, yeah. So on easy, Max right now. Easy yeah. to see. Yep. Okay. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with a movie that I think thematically is not dissimilar to this film. Uh, yeah, I but agree. but uh, very different in tenor and everything else. That's so, right. All right, uh, Groundhog Day. We come back. Okay, Groundhog Day. Um, and like you said, this is a movie we both liked. A movie we both have, you know, discussed before, and I think has gained a lot of momentum over the last, you know, maybe decade or two as a kind of spiritually significant movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Now I, mean, I will say, when I saw it, yeah, when it first came out, I was saw it was a Bill Murray like comedy. Right. Um, of course, you know, that was a long time ago. Yeah. But, uh, Thirty years but, ago. But the fact that I think I, I definitely gave it another look when I started seeing it appearing on. Mm-hmm. list of you know spiritually profound films and i was like what the bill murray movie with like with the weird insurance guy <laughs> right. and the whole thing so uh i thought this was a good choice i'm glad you're going to do it and i look yeah. forward to hearing what you have to say about it yeah it's interesting to me that absolutely when you look on lists of spiritually significant films this is on a lot of them from a lot of different perspectives mm-hmm. you know the some of our movies you know like the mission or something like that you might find that on a list that was christian or catholic centric Mm -hmm. this one is one that is loved by and appreciated by buddhists Mm -hmm. and hindus and jews and christians um and i think it's interesting to kind of think about why that is um and uh but i think it, it definitely has something to say from the christian perspective even though it's not of course, an explicitly Christian mm. film. So, yeah, so this is 1993, starring Bill Murray and Andy McDowell and Chris Elliott, um, and written and directed by Harold Ramis, right. whom listeners probably know as Egon <laughs> in right. Ghostbusters. He passed away in 2014. Mm. Um, and he uh, co wrote this with uh, Danny Rubin, whose idea the script was. Mm-hmm. And developed over time, of course, and um, produced in 1993 or released in 1993 and a big hit at the time. Um, Can I interrupt real quick about Ramis? Sure. Did he write Ghostbusters? I know he did Stripes. I think he did. Or was he, I I know, is it Ivan Reitman, I think, did directed Ghostbusters? Anyway, I'm not sure. Reitman directed Ghostbusters. I guess what what I'm getting at is that Ramis had... A little bit of an underrated career, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, he was a part of some really big films there for about a decade. Yeah. Um, a little bit more. Caddyshack, I think he was involved yeah, in. Yeah, he well. directed Caddyshack. Yeah. So, this yeah. is an interesting figure that, you know, maybe in some sense has, we've forgotten, as you said. I right. mean, uh, we don't sort of hold him up as like one of the major kind of comic writers of his era, but he was a pretty important guy. He was. And yeah. interestingly enough, related to the, the theme of this film, um, when I mentioned that it was appreciated by buddhists he talked about that his wife was buddhist okay uh, and his mother-in-law lived in a buddhist community for 30 years so i mean you know we can say perhaps that you know informs this film Mm -hmm. i've heard that before yeah yeah yeah. um 
so Groundhog Day, first of all, even though people, you know, we, when we think about the holiday of Groundhog Day, which is on February 2nd, which is also the same day date as the Catholic holiday, Christian holiday of Candlemas, apparently from what I've read, they just picked Groundhog Day because it was a holiday and it was actually uh, not religious and they uh, could kind of focus the film around it because with, without that attendant kind of baggage. So um, I'm going to go through the plot, even though I don't know if I need to, but who knows, you know, people which forget plot, things. Which, which plot? Which plot? <laughs> yeah. So Bill Murray plays a Pittsburgh weatherman named Phil Collins. He is arrogant and obnoxious and doesn't care about anybody else except himself. And he's got his you know, usual, much dreaded assignment of going to Paxitani <laughs> to cover the very exciting appearance of the groundhog, Phil the Groundhog, of the Groundhog Day festivities. And he goes to Paxitani with his new producer, played by Andy McDowell, and his cameraman, Chris Elliott. And so we get there, we see him kind of perfunctorily running through the camera, the, the shot and the little kind of set up in front of the um, the groundhog dais and everybody celebrating around him, but he doesn't care. And he gets done and he's ready to leave and they leave all together in the van and are stopped by a blizzard. So they have to return to Paxitani, much to Phil, Bill Murray's distress, of course. He's staying in a little bed and breakfast in a nice Victorian home um the others are staying in a hotel and lots of good exchanges with the the host of the bnb absolutely absolutely <laughs> and, so, and a kiss as well right <laughs> so he goes through this he finishes the day he goes to bed and he wakes up to the same uh you know his clock in that sort of classic analog clock flipping of the numbers flips to 6 a.m sunny and Cher start singing I got you, babe. The very hyper DJs come on and start talking, but it's the same conversation and the same words that happened yesterday when he woke up. He gets up and he looks out the window. It's the same scene on the street. There's no snow. There had been a blizzard the day before. There's no snow. It's the same thing. He goes out and he meets the same weird guy in the hall. He goes downstairs and it's the, the hostess of the B&B asks him the same questions. And so it, he eventually figures out that this day, strangely enough, is evolving the exact same way yesterday had. And this happens the next day. And so what he figures eventually is that he is stuck in a time loop. Mm. And he doesn't know why, and he doesn't know how, and we're not told. And I was going to say, and, and he, it's not just that he doesn't know why. We have no we idea. We don't know, and we right. never do. And never to do. me, right. that's part of the appeal of the film and maybe part of the spiritual, you know, kind of re resonance of the film is that we're not given clear answers, not given any answers. Mm. We don't know. It's not like Back to the Future. It's not like Big or something like that. We don't know why this is happening, and he never finds out either. We just know, and he just knows, that every morning he wakes up at 6 a.m. to the same Sunny and Cher song and the same things happening. And so how do you address this? What do you do about this? Well, his first reaction, once he kind of figures out what's going on and he figures out, oh, I can, like, 
do anything and not have to bear the consequences, and the other people don't have to bear long-term consequences are, he engage, he, you know, he turns to hedonism. Right, right. He, he, you know, he decides he's going to eat what he wants. He decides he's going to use what information he can get to seduce mm -hmm. women and all of this kind of thing. And he just kind of goes on and on day after day after day. He eventually decides that he's even going to use this information to maybe try to get with his with Andy McDowell, with his producer. And just to jump in on that, right. he, he actually progresses through different stages of hedonism. Yeah, right? he does. There, there's mm -hmm. like a really crude hedonistic stage where he's like smoking cigarettes, drinking <laughs> coffee, drinking alcohol, and eating donuts at the same time. Right. Right. But then, he, like you said, he starts engaging in more refined pleasures. This actually reminds me a lot of the, the first part of Either Or, Kierkegaard's Either Or, yeah. where he... He traces this kind of distinction between kind of the immediate aesthete and the more refined aesthete. No, they're both aesthetes. You're right, but, right. But one represents a kind of deeper level of despair. And I think it's important to note that the yeah. his, his when he starts trying to seduce Andy McDowell mm -hmm. is actually reaching the culmination right. of his despair. Right. right. Rather, eating the donuts was bad, but like he was having fun. But then mm -hmm. he realized that didn't lead anywhere. Mm -hmm. But then he starts really trying to kind of have his way with people. Mm -hmm. And then he, when that sort of starts failing, he falls into this deep depression. Deep, deep yeah. depression, and he's bored. He can predict everything right. that's right. going to happen right. to the minute, right, to the second. And he gets so much in despair, he decides the only way out right. is to end it all. <laughs> and that maybe this will actually end it all. And this actually is probably maybe the most disturbing it's pretty disturbing part yeah. of the film yeah. in which he tries to kill himself in multiple several, in multiple ways, ways. and yeah. of course the most famous way is that he kidnaps the groundhog <laughs> in the track and takes the groundhog and the groundhog's on the steering wheel and he's driving and he goes to a quarry and he drives off the cliff into the quarry and the truck bursts into flames well, the chris elliott character the, the truck like does like a, a, I don't know, a total flip oh off God. the cliff and chris elliott goes well he could maybe survive that and, and then it bursts into flame he goes no he's dead not. <laughs> and then of course next shot is 6 a.m right. sunny and share same thing and then he very deadpan trudges down to the uh dining area grabs the toaster right <laughs> takes it up to the bathtub yeah, it, it plugs it in, and and he tries to. He jumps off the clock tower. He does all this kind of thing. Of course, none of it's successful. Mm. Um, so that hasn't worked. And then, so what's left? So right? what's left? Yeah, what's left? What else can he do? He finally, on one of these days, he connects with Rita, who is Andy McDowell again, and you know, and he convinces her to some extent what's happening to mm. him. You know, and she, he, they're in the diner, and he kind of is able to predict everything that's going to happen. And so she basically says to him, well, maybe it's a blessing. Make the best of it. And from that moment, I mean, he's not completely, you know, changed, but he kind of makes some decisions. And who knows if it's because he wants to again... <laughs> you know, use it as a way to engage with her, but he does. And he starts to um, use his time, first of all, to improve himself. Mm -hmm. He takes piano lessons. He learns <laughs> to ice sequence. sculpt. Right. He, you know, he does all the, it, so it's all about self-improvement. Mm -hmm. And then, 
he has this encounter every when he has you know every day when he's walked from his B and B to the um, town square for mm. the celebration. Of course, he's What's encountered it called, like Gobbler's Knob. Gobbler's Knob. Yeah, right. yeah. He ha- every of course every day most famously he's encountered right. his former high school classmate yes, Ned Ned Ryerson. Ned Ryerson. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he also sees and passes by this homeless guy, this mm. beggar, and. Um, one night of the many nights, he passes by the homeless guy, and the guy is like struggling and he's holding his heart. And so he takes him to the hospital and he dies. And the nurse says, People die. And he says, Not tonight. Mm-hmm. And the next scene that we see is, we presume, the next day. And when um, Phil, Bill Murray, is sitting at the diner with the homeless guy, giving him soup. And then he the next night he dies again. And so it's like this sense that um, that has, you know, that hits him in terms of the reality of life. First of all, that he is not in control of things, which is a theme we want to come back mm. to. Uh, but secondly, that maybe there is more to this time that he should be using than just, you know, living for himself, trying to get girls, even trying to you know, get a woman in a kind of a better sense more than a one night stand, and so from that point on, he becomes you know, super you know bodhisattva as right, some of the yeah, Buddhists yeah, yeah. would say, that he becomes the you know hero of the town. He rescues people. He saves people. Well, he, the kid, fall, yeah, he, the, the yeah, kid falling out he, of the tree. I should say. Yeah. yeah. And did you know? I read this. So when he's in the hospital with the homeless guy in the background the kid is in a wheelchair oh, with a broken leg okay. yeah. with his mother talking to a nurse right so then you know people say like so what he must have done is like figured out what happened and why the kid broke his leg mm. so in, in subsequent days he like rescues the kid falling out of the yeah tree. his attention to the world around him i think this would be yeah i don't want to anticipate too much but one of the sort of spiritual themes here is pay attention Right. Right. You, all the, the, the people that you walk past every day or the, the thing that you kind of sweep aside as you know, unimportant actually mm-hmm. has a lot of resonance with, mm-hmm. the, with, with the sort of world around you. So finally, we get to this day in which, you know, all of this comes together and he does all kinds of wonderful things. He does the Heimlich on somebody, mm-hmm. saves somebody's life. And of course, Rita is along for all of this and is, you know, she only knows him as a jerk. And right. so she's like finally on this day seeing him as a really you know, something completely different as a really kind, compassionate person. And he is, he's not doing it for her. He has become that. Mm-hmm. And it culmin- the you know, all of this culminates at the, you know, celebration right. of Groundhog Day at a party where he's like playing, you know, wonderful expert rock and roll piano. With his piano teacher in the front row. Teacher, you know, very proud. He's like, he's my student. <laughs> One day, he's my student. Um, and, she, and then the Andy McDowell character bids on him in a, a charity auction. And they go for a walk in the snow-covered park, as they've done several times before. And he sculpts an ice sculpture of her, a beautiful ice sculpture of her. They return to the B&B. She doesn't slap him this time. <laughs> and we go forward to the next day. We have the camera on the clock. Flips down from 5.59 to 6. 
Sonny and Cher start singing. We see Bill Murray's face, and then we see her arm reach across and slam it shut. Mm. And he says, you know, you know, he's trying to sort out what's happening. And he says, you know, she says, he says, something's different. And she says, what is different? And he says, it doesn't matter. If it's something's different, that's right. good. And then he says this great line. He says, today is tomorrow. Today mm -hmm. is tomorrow. And um, so he's finally, for some reason, somehow, perhaps because of his, you know, self-knowledge, his, you know, his, his personal growth or whatever, has gotten out of the time loop. He looks outside. The neighborhood, the world is covered with snow. The snow, which in the first part of the movie had been the bane of his existence, now is a thing of beauty. And they walk outside, and the first thing he says is, let's live here. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> which is fantastic, because, you know, this had been his prison. Right. Right? And he says, let's live here. But let's rent, maybe. Yeah, right. And so, <laughs> end of movie. And it's a, a you know, a beautiful beautiful way to end this film that is just crazy it's a crazy hilarious movie um but as i said at the beginning with this very interesting spiritual sensibility and i think you can take it in a lot of different ways you want to add anything before i no i don't think so i mean i that, to me it is it's a movie that you really do have to kind of accept on its own terms yeah, right i mean because right. you you said a minute ago like well something is different but there are, like, as he goes through these various iterations of his day, there are subtle differences that crop up. It's oh, yeah. okay. And so it's not, it wasn't always clear to me plot-wise. Right. I didn't think I understand why it's done this way, but plot-wise, right. it wasn't always clear to me, like, why is this difference different than that difference, right. if you will. Right. right? Um, I suppose it has to do with his own location. Yeah. Or what, what aspect of the world that he chose to explore on that particular mm -hmm. day. I mean, it leaves you with a lot of questions plot-wise. Right. But um, I think, like you said, like you've alluded to already, I mean, I think that there's certainly something larger going on here, a kind of a, an unpacking of the significance of our lives, which, you know, we all like to, we, you know, thinking about, well, I mean, not, not to get, you know, too personal about this, but like thinking about my mom's funeral right. recently. And, right. you know, you tend to, you go back to these high points of a person's life, you know, mm -hmm. and that's the... That's the, the natural thing to do, right? At a funeral right. or something, you're, you're writing an obituary and you go through, well, some accomplishments or things like things like that. But one of the really fascinating aspects of this movie is that it wants to talk about your everyday life, the, right. the boring stuff, the guy that you walk past every day, don't notice, or you know, the person that gets on your nerves. Yeah, you know, and right. and that's what I think is a, a truly unique feature of this film. Yeah, and I I will say, you know, as to your point about plot points, plot holes or whatever mm -hmm. so my least favorite genre of anything is time travel mm. i hate time travel movies right right because they never make sense so back to, to me. the future is not in your top no nine, oh and right. i hate back to the future for other reasons <laughs> really? too oh, i hate it oh, no. should we even go there right <laughs> because now because <laughs> the whole point of it is his parents weren't cool oh, right. and so like the you know, everything's okay when his parents become cool. Well, he has to make sure they get together, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, because otherwise he wouldn't exist. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, anyway, anyway that's a good way to leave that one. <laughs> Not that I'm so big. I don't have Back to the Future posters on my wall or anything, but 
Um, right. Well, I, I will say, I just do want to give a little uh, heads up. The one time travel movie that I have seen that I like is called About Time. Have you ever seen it? I have not. It's no. a 2013 British movie. Okay. And it's my son, David Vinings, and his wife's one of their favorite movies. And I saw it, you know, at their house about a year ago. I'd never heard of it. And I'm like weeping at the wow. end of it. It's okay. really good. About Time. Okay. It's very good. Um, anyway, yeah. uh, plot holes aside. So, yeah, so a, there are a lot of kind of spiritual, you know, themes to take from this. First is the, what do you do with the life you've been given? Mm. You know, this is, to me, you know, if you're going to look at Groundhog Day as a metaphor, it's kind of, when he talks to one of the guys he meets at the bowling alley, and he describes his life, you know, it's the same thing day after day, <laughs> that, no purpose. And the guy says, sounds like my life, yeah, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it's about, and, and this is the turning point for him when he is complaining about this, the Andy McDowell character, and she says, well, then just, if this is true, if this is happening, make the best of it. Mm. And it's not that our lives are exactly the same day after day, but sometimes we may feel like that. But the point is, you know, we all feel trapped. We may all feel constrained by our circumstances. We all may feel a lack of freedom, right? That we, you know, maybe in our younger days we thought we would have, and we don't have that anymore. What do we do with that? Mm -hmm. You know, do we just, you know, try to live for ourselves? Or do we try to love? I mean, you know? It seems to be a universal condition as well, yeah. because... Yeah, how many interviews have we seen with celebrities who are like, you know, well, you know, even though I had, you know, beach house in Malibu and, uh, you, know, you know, an apartment <laughs> in Manhattan and, you know, another place in, I don't know, Italy or something, you know, there's still a sense of ennui that sets in uh, right. a kind of, a kind of sense that it all means nothing. I mean, again, this is where I would connect it, let's say, to, to Babette's Feast, where remember when uh, Lawrence, the, as an older man, he, st he, gets right. a, he stares at himself in the mirror and he says, all is vanity. Right. right, right. There's a sense in which, you know, we can we tend to sort of dress up these high points in our lives as the only things that matter, but it right. really is like most of your life is lived in these day to day experiences. And I, again, yeah. I think this is the kind of thing that the movie, again, uniquely holds out for us to contemplate. Right. Exactly. Another theme is um, hubris mm -hmm. and yeah. humility. I mean, because when we meet Phil at the beginning, he is not only an arrogant jerk. He kind of had, you know, he keeps, even though he, you know, he doesn't believe it, he keeps throwing out this stuff like, I'm in control of the mm. weather. And he's convinced, he knows that that blizzard is not going to affect him. What, he what knows does he say? It's going to push on? To Altoona, right? To Altoona. Right. Right. Um, and, he, and he knows it. Yeah. But he is absolutely confounded. He's totally wrong. He can't stop that guy from dying, the right. homeless guy from dying. He, and there's a scene in the cafe, in the diner where he's trying to, exp, you know, figure out with any McDowell character what's going on. He says, well, maybe I'm God, you know, <laughs> but right. probably not. Right. But maybe I am. And so there's this sense of, um, you know, when he enters into the film, when he has, and when we meet him, he is not only just arrogant, he is convinced that his, you know, satisfaction, his happiness in life is attributed partly because the fact of everything he can control and manage 
and he discovers that he can't mm. and he kind of gives you know he gives in to the uh, command instead to love and to care right or yeah i, I think right? about you know my, my my boys are often well <laughs> their baseball coach has recommended that they that they follow this um I guess it's kind of like a Zoom session for mental skills in yeah. baseball. But one yeah. of the kind of key themes in all this is control what you can control. Yeah, right. right, right. And I think that's one of the themes of the film is control right. what you can control. Like, yeah. he can't stop the homeless guy's death. Right. But he can ease his pain in mm -hmm. some sense. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, uh, you know, he can't prevent the blizzard, but he can enjoy being in the snow-filled park with, you know, his beloved right. or what have you. Right. And so there, there's a real... There's, there's a kind of coming to there's a realization that he has to just do what he can to make his mm -hmm. life better and make other people's lives better. And I think that you know explains part of the kind of universal spiritual appeal mm -hmm. of this across various traditions. Sure, right. Because all of that, it, you know, despite our you know important differences between spiritual traditions, tends you know is a commonality. Right. Is that Peace and happiness is found in acceptance, mm -hmm. it's found in service, it's found in love, right. and it's found in, you know, kind of negation of the self in that sense. Um, and so, you know, and that's what he discovers is that, um, you know, his, and I don't know if, if, you know, it's interesting to me to think about, again, is the way he is at the end, is it? due to the all he had suffered and experienced beforehand and that's mm -hmm. another spiritual uh perspective is that we can you know we experience all kinds of things we go through all kinds of experiences in fact in you know, one of the interpretations i read from this from a hindu perspective mm -hmm. is that is that in hinduism you know hinduism kind of embraces a for men because it's a sorry, patriarchal kind of centered religion. Uh, so, <laughs> um, it, well, I, you know, when they talk about this, they don't talk about women. It's about men. Right, right. You know, that a man is going to go through several stages in life. He's going to go through the student stage. He's going to go through the householder stage. Then he, all of that is going to lead to the point where he can be wise mm -hmm. finally. Right. right. Um, and you know, kind of that's the journey of Bill Murray. There is and, kind of a reincarnational oh, feel to this. Movie, absolutely, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's. I, yeah. I can see. I can see the connection or how that might be sort of embraced. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, you know, in all, it comes down to living in the present. It's moment. funny. I mean, I yeah. think you know what's reincarnational for perhaps a kind of Hindu reading of the film. I think maybe in philosophical terms, or, or yeah, purgatory. Like we think of it in terms of repetition, right? Yeah. In terms of. Again, going back to that baseball example I gave, which I know is sort, mm -hmm. of, sort of tossed out there, but I mean, I think, you know, okay, if you didn't do it well, this is that, then try it again next time. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's sort of, you know, you keep going, you keep trying every day mm -hmm. and try to get, quote unquote, 1% better, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of what, you know, the Murray character, Phil, kind of learns over time. Right. It's like, the best use of my time is to try to do better every day, even I'm going to fail, and he right. fails again and again mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. again. But he learns a little bit every time, right? Until he does finally achieve something like happiness or bliss. Or something. And and to yeah. me, the interesting, most subtle point in all of that progress is that, you know, there may be kind of a 
framework in which him improving himself was mm -hmm. enough. Right, right, that's right? right, yeah. But it's not. Right. Because that's still just for him. Right? Right. So, exactly. All right, I'm ready for yeah. some categories. All right, the categories. So this is this is a tough one, the most funny moment in the film. Gee, I don't know. Yeah, yeah so I, again, is in a film filled with hilarious moments and great dialogue, some of it, of course, ad-libbed mm -hmm. famously by Bill Murray. I think, I guess I, I'm going to pick out um, the scene at the bar where he's trying to seduce Andy McDowell, where, you know, he asks her what she drinks, and she says vermouth with a twist, and so then, then we flash to the next day, and he orders the same thing, and, right. you know, shall we toast? And she says, well, I always toast a world peace. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And so we flash to the next day, right. and he says, well, I always toast a world peace and same prayer. <laughs> That just makes me laugh. Okay. No, it's good. I mean, for me, I, I got to throw in, I know it's low-hanging fruit, but the, the Ned Ryerson stuff is oh, yeah. too good, I mean, right? Oh, yeah. Watch out for that step. It's a doozy. <laughs> yeah. right, and he keeps doing it again and again. Finally, he's like, nope, I'm going to step right over this right. puddle. Right. That's what, yeah, the, the Ned Ryerson character. What's the name of the actor? Do you know? I don't. It's like Tagowski or something. Yeah. yeah but it, this has got to be his great role i mean oh, yeah. it's very memorable and he, every time he sees him he's like really annoying and he always laughs when phil steps in this icy puddle <laughs> right, right and phil is so annoyed and then finally he manages to dodge the puddle. anyway right. it's hilarious yeah. yeah okay uh most poignant moment i would say the material with the homeless guy and yeah, it's particularly it's the part in the diner after you know the second time that he's quote died and they're sharing the soup they're yeah. They're drinking the soup, and he, you know, there's a real change in Murray's character in which the guy is, I mean, it's a very simple scene in which the guy is finishing his soup, and mm. he's kind of struggling to get the end, and Bill Murray switches balls with him, and he says, that's always hard. You know, the end's always yeah. hard. Yeah, that's, nice. that's a good choice. Yeah. I like that. All right, if you could only watch one scene. Oh, I left this blank. In, um, in this movie, is particularly hard, right? Because it's kind so. of the same scene over and over, over and over and over again. <laughs> right. I read a blog of a guy yeah. who watched this movie every day for a year. Wow. Yeah, That's he said, I'm going to like live Groundhog Day. I'm going to watch it every day for a year and see what I get out of it. That's um, crazy. Yeah, I would yeah. say if I were going to tell somebody to watch one scene, it would be, uh, I would say like the first scene after his on the the first day in which he realizes that this is a time loop mm -hmm. when he first encounters the guy on the stairs and first encounters the woman in the uh the dining room of the b&b &B because it's like his it's like when it's first becoming clear that things are weird and so i don't know i mean i think this is the same day but when he, yeah when he goes and drinks with the locals yeah and like right. you said when like when he's like i mean what if you're like you're reliving <laughs> every day it was always the same and the guy's like that's my life yeah that's right. to me that's where the film really makes this kind of deep connection right. to, to right. again to everybody or, you know, right is it heidegger's notion of el teglishkeit right this everydayness that mm -hmm. we all kind of experience mm -hmm. um it, it takes a it takes on a really deep significance at that point right, right. before you're like what's going on here right. like, oh this is about Exactly. the humdrum crap that I do every day and how right. I deal with it. Right. You know, and it's really yeah. profound in that regard. Uh, best performance? I mean, I don't know if there's really a question here, but maybe you'll have a surprise for me. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's Bill Murray, although, yeah. as we said before we spoke, I need to, like, 
since I went on a rant about Woody Allen yeah. last <laughs> week, I do need to mention, you know, the recent you know accusations and so on against Bill Murray, which I do not dismiss at all. Um, and I think someday maybe we need to have a discussion about artists of different kinds mm -hmm. and their personal lives and the art they produce. Um, because I know that I have like a different reaction to Woody Allen than I do to Bill Murray. Hmm. And I don't That's know curious, why. That's curious, right? Yeah. I don't know why. Maybe because he didn't write the material? Yeah. You think that might be it? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's a part of it. But anyway, yeah. I think Mur even though Bill Murray is playing Bill Murray, as right. Murray always does, I do think he does a great job yeah. of communicating his confusion, his acceptance, his change, his growth, his transformation. It's hmm. not just a comedic Bill Murray oh. Not at performance. all. Well, I was going to yeah. say, I mean, you know, much, much has been made of Wes Anderson's rediscovery of Bill Murray right. in the 2000s, right. and his performance in Rushmore was much ballyhooed. Um, and then, of course, there was Lost in Translation, the Sofia mm -hmm. Coppola mm -hmm. movie. Um, but it's all here already. I mm -hmm. mean, the fact that, that this kind of, there is this kind of angry, I think even my daughter, when we were watching that hunt, she mm. was like, he was just like that in the other movie, and she was talking about Scrooge. <laughs> oh, And I right. said, right, because mm -hmm. he plays this kind of angsty, it's funny, but there is a real dark underbelly mm -hmm. to his to his characterization it does make me wonder about these accusations as you mentioned like mm -hmm. you know i think he's got some demons as a as a side note interestingly enough my wife taught at a catholic school in the chicago area yeah i think it was was it winnetka i think it was in winnetka mm -hmm. and bill murray's sister is a catholic nun and she came and spoke yeah. to the community so it's a really big like I guess Irish Catholic. Yeah, family. and she actually right. she used to do. I don't know if she's too old to do this now, but she yeah. used to do a traveling show, right. playing Catherine of Siena. Oh, okay. And then, of course, did. his other brothers are, are in a number of his films. Well, yeah, uh, and right, his like brother is in this, one, in this one as well, in, in right? This one. So, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know. He's a he's an interesting character, but I I think I would have to say, don't know a, a whole lot about the accusations, but I have to say that you know is a great actor really yeah um, and i think this goes all the way back to the snl stuff and the mm -hmm. star wars bar and all the silly stuff right. that he did but but there is this kind of angsty side to bill murray that, oh, that really this movie brings out like you said the suicide stuff is really grim yeah. somehow he makes it funny but it's still grim <laughs> it is grim. Uh, okay uh all right this is this is gonna be tough the ultimate takeaway I think the ultimate takeaway is you know what he says at the end today is tomorrow today is tomorrow I like and it. that you know the challenge is with all of us, I think, to make the worst day of our life into the best. Okay. It can happen. Right. Or um, the worst day or just the every day? The every day. The every day could yeah. be the best. Today yeah. could be your best day, even though right. all you got to go to the grocery store and right. do whatever exactly. stuff you need to do. Um, exactly. Okay. Beautiful. Really go. good summary. And uh, that wraps up our number 10. Uh, yeah. Uh, halfway. On our list. We're, we're really making progress here. So we'll come back next week. We'll dig into number nine. I think. Do we, I think we know what our number nine will be, but we're not going to say yet. No, of course we're right. not. We never do. Yes. But And I think from then on, from now on, I think we get kind of like more, you know, definitive about our choices. Right. Right. Exactly. I know I do. Yeah. <laughs> I think I do. I got to go back and look at my <laughs> list again. I know you, you've revised yours. And yeah. I'm still kind of working off my original. Mm -hmm. But uh, in any case, we're looking forward to it. We've enjoyed Cahaba Brewing Company. Thank you very much, Cahaba yeah, Brewing. Yeah, thank you to them. And we've had a nice time here, and I suspect we'll be back. We might. <laughs> right. have, have a great week, and we'll be back soon.